Well, good morning. Uh, please take your Bibles out and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the 15th chapter as we continue to press on through this very important book of Scripture. Uh, last week was the Super Bowl, and uh, amongst uh, the, the storylines from that Super Bowl, the main storyline, the game, or maybe Maybe the main storyline was Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, I don't know. But there was another storyline in the midst of all of that that some of you may have noticed or may have noticed in this week after the Super Bowl, and that is an ad campaign that took place during the Super Bowl uh, in the midst of all the ads about uh, soft drinks and candy bars and automobiles and everything else. There was uh, an ad campaign called He Gets Us. And it was an ad campaign uh, about drawing attention to Jesus Christ. Uh, controversial ad campaign, I should say, um, because many people uh, were disappointed with the content of those ads or the message of those ads and felt like in some way it could be shaped or directed differently. And I understand that, certainly. But I do think there is a sense in which we should give some credit to those people who invested extraordinarily large sums of money, as you know, it was over $7 million per 30-second ads, and there were four during the Super Bowl, so $28 million to try to put the name of Jesus in front of the world. For those that are critical of that ad campaign, again, I get it, but... I do have to ask myself and us the question, have we shared our faith at all before being critical of those who've tried to do something? Uh, which kind of points us toward where I want to go with the passage this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 15. And it's the question of how we in the church become more faithful stewards of our public witness. How do we convey to the watching world around us, the essence of the Jesus that has saved us in such a way that they feel the weight of their sin and the greatness of God. Because the main thing is, brothers and sisters, the way the church lives out its faith among its own says a lot about the God that it claims to worship. Now this was true Today, it's true for us in the modern world. It was true for the people of God in the days of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, Moses is applying the fourth commandment, which is the commandment on Sabbath rest, to the faithful of God in the way that they were going to live their lives when they entered the promised land. He was saying that the fourth commandment mattered to them, not just for their own faith and the development and deepening of their own spirituality, but it actually mattered for the whole of their people and the whole of their nation and its ultimate thriving and the witness that it would have to those around them. Now there's no doubt when we look at passages like Deuteronomy chapter 15, and the Old Testament in general, that they apply to the Old Testament people of God in a specific sense. We are not Old Testament Israel. We don't live in Old Testament Israel. Our law, our nation, our economics are not like that of Old Testament Israel. And yet, 
there remains a sense in which the principles that we see in the Old Testament, especially regarding how the nation would function, do still apply to us as New Testament people, as the people of God, the New Testament church of God. And so I want us to see that this morning. And what I want us to see as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 15 is that we too must pursue the principle of sabbatical in the way that we live. And so would you listen as I read beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. This is God's holy and inerrant word of God. It's just as true for us today as it was for these people who originally received it from the Lord. This is what it says to us. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as He promised you. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land, Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man, or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this day. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an all and put it through his ear to the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. 
It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you. For at half the cost of a hired servant, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Sends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Grant us your grace, O Lord, to understand the meaning of this passage, both to those who first received it and to us who live some 3,000 years later. Help us to understand what it means to live as witnesses to you, even in the way we live amongst one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We must pursue the principle of the sabbatical in the way that we live. So what is the sabbatical principle that we find in this passage? It's stated right off the bat in verse 1. It is the granting of a significant release every seven years. It says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release, which is the Hebrew term for the canceling of a debt. This was ultimately, as the passage is going to unfold, for the good of the entire nation and for its ultimate thriving and for the witness that it would have in the world. So what kind of situations does the passage have in view? Well, the first one has to do with the relief of debts in verses 1 to 3. It says, this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. And so the situation in this part of the passage is talking about a person who has lent a brother or sister in the community some sum of money. And that over the course of that seven-year period, that debt is attempting to be paid back or there's been a struggle to pay it back. Whatever the case, at the end of that time period, at the end of the seven years, you are to cancel the debt. Some commentators talk about maybe it's a cancellation of the interest on the debt only or some kind of a deferral, but the text seems to be clear that it is the full cancellation of the debt. And whatever uh, the case, whichever way that we look at that, there was relief required in order to not entrench that person in intractable poverty. Because if people amongst the people of God found themselves in intractable poverty, it would do damage to the nation. It would do damage to the witness of those who believed in God that they allowed poverty to persist in their midst. And so the relief that was in order was enabling this person the opportunity to recover their dignity and to live a productive and fruitful life in the midst of the nation. The same is true in the second scenario, verses 7 to 9. We're talking about the rehabilitation of the needy. It says in verse 7, If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And so the situation in, in view here is that during some particular seven-year period of time in the nation, one of your neighbors falls into poverty. They do something in their life that costs them gravely so they can no longer support themselves and their family. 
What you should do in that situation, the passage says, that you should lend to him sufficient for his need. Whatever it may be. And it warns, take care. Lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, oh, well the seventh year, the year of release is coming. And therefore, I'm not going to lend you any money because I know I'm going to lose it. God warns against that kind of thinking within the community of faith. So the call to the people of God at this time was that you should grant a gift or a loan. If it's late in the seven-year cycle, you know what you're doing is essentially a gift. If it's early in the seven-year cycle, it may be a loan. The reason you should do it is for the good welfare of this human being who is amongst your kin, your nation, your people, people of faith. The third scenario in verses 12 to 14 has to do with indentured servitude. This wasn't slavery, forced slavery like we had in the American South. This is an indentured servitude, someone who falls into debt and in order to pay off their debt, they bind themselves to the one to whom the debt is owed. And so they go into service of that person. It's as if they work off their debt in that seven-year period. And the situation then is a neighbor falls into that situation. They come to, lay, to, to work amongst you, and in that way they pay off their debt. It says, if among you, uh, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you for six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. You should send him away with stuff that he can build a new life on. That is your responsibility as a person of faith, and it tells us why at the end of verse 14. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. And so three different scenarios amongst the people of God in the Old Testament as they entered the land of promised to be a thriving nation that worshiped the Lord their God. He warns them in all three of these situations that one of the things that will undermine your ability to function as I have called you to function is if you allow poverty to become intractable amongst one another. It will damage you it will damage the person in poverty, and it will damage your witness to the world. And so these are the things that you are called to do. Now listen, we, as I said at the beginning, are not Old Testament Israel. We do not live in their economy. The world that we live in and the structure of the modern world we have is not like theirs. But what we're told throughout the Bible is that the church of God the New Testament people of God that trust in Jesus Christ are now the whole nation of God's people. And so the principle of sabbatical that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 15 in specific applies to the way that we conduct ourselves within the community of faith and in particular within our own churches. Within our own churches, the principle is that there should not be be poverty that people in our midst whether it be economic or emotional or spiritual or some other type 
of poverty, that we, the church of God, should do everything in our power to help them find relief and release even if it costs us something. And that, brothers and sisters, was an idea that permeated the life of the early church. I won't read all the passages to you, but we know Acts chapter 2 describes the nature of the early church in Jerusalem. And it said they had everything in common. And there was not a poor person among them because they gave freely. In 1 John chapter 3 and verses 17 and 18, John is writing to the New Testament people and he says, if anyone has the world's goods and he sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's very easy for New Testament people to say, oh, all this stuff about the poor in the Old Testament doesn't apply to us. But the witness of the Scriptures, Old and New Testament together, is it does. It still applies to us in the way that we conduct ourselves within the community of faith, and we'll talk about that more as we go. So why, why should we pursue this principle? Why is it something that we should care about as a church family. Well, the first thing I might say about that is the point in these passages is the pursuit and not necessarily the final victory. And we know that uh, because of a couple of things. One is in verse 4, it says, do this so that there will not be any poor among you. And then we come down to verse 11 and it says, there will always be poor among you. And so even uh, in the Old Testament, Moses And the Lord understands that poverty is a part of the nature of human existence. And people fall into poverty for all kinds of reasons. Some of them their own fault. Some of them the fault of others. There will be poverty in the church. But you as a church should not settle for that. You should labor in all of your strength, in every way you can, to alleviate the poverty that you see around you, even if it continues to appear in the life of your family. That's one thing we know. A couple other things we know is that doing this will help us keep our perspective on the fact that everything that we have has been given to us by God as a blessing. In fact, in this passage, you see it repeated multiple times. Verse 4, verse 6, verse 7, verse 10, verse 14, verse verse 15, verse 18, in some way or another is talking about the fact God has blessed you. Do not become misers. Do not become hoarders. Do not become people that are only watching out for yourselves. Do not have a mine mentality. Have a his mentality. And if the people of God in the Old Testament, people of God in the New Testament would look at the things that they have been given with a His mentality and not a mine mentality, then it will do important and wonderful things in the life of the community as you embrace what some call this kinship economy. It's not communism. I'm not talking about communism. I'm not talking, and the New Testament never talks about forcing anyone to do this. 
but it is an invitation to the people of God to have a His mentality with everything that we have and to be generous with everything that we have so that in the end, the nation, as verse 6 says, will have ample supply. This is what it says in verse 6. The Lord your God will bless you as He promised you and you shall lend to many nations but you shall not borrow and you shall rule over many nations but they shall not rule over you. Now let me just kind of unpack this a little bit for you as a church family. We've been around 17 years now as a church and in every year of our existence we've given away, we tithe on the gifts that you give to this church so that 10% and then we raised it to 11% and it's actually more than that when you look at the way the ministries function. We're giving away somewhere between 11 and 15% of every dollar that comes into this church. And who are we giving those dollars to? We're giving it to missionaries. We're giving it to the poor, to the needy, to the work of the diaconate. And the idea of what's being spoken of in Genesis, Deuteronomy 15 here, in verse 16, where it says, you shall lend to many nations, you shall be generous, you shall give from amongst yourself. That's something that you have been a part of since the early days of this church and will continue to be a part of. And the chief officers of doing this in our church are the deacons. We had the elders stand for you at the beginning today as your shepherds, as those who pray for you, those who teach, preach, and govern the church. The deacons are the leaders in stewardship in the church. And we have a number of deacons in this church. I think there's 16 or 17 active deacons now. And their job is to cultivate this mentality in the life of the church and to seek out those who have needs so that there are no poor among us. And what begins to happen as the deacons fulfill this responsibility is people notice what's going on inside this church or in any church that does this is that God is being worshipped and everyone there is being cared for. Maybe I should consider being a part of that community. It is a witness to the world when we do these things. Now, there's a warning. There's several warnings in this passage about the sin patterns or the obstacles that might make the pursuit of this principle difficult. The first one's in verse 5. It says, If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. So he's saying, look, if you take your eyes off of God's word and you start to listen to the world and what the world values and what the world says you should do and you listen to your financial advisors who are only concerned about your prosperity and your retirement, then this won't work because all that you're receiving is their wisdom and not the wisdom of the Word of God. Certainly, we should care for our retirement and our children and part of the blessing that we give generation to generation, but is part of what we're thinking about how the resources that we have been given can go to others who have great need of them. And he says the way that you'll maintain that is if you obey the voice of the Lord. A second thing in verse 7, a second obstacle or sin tendency that we have is to harden our hearts against those in need. 
If among you, it says, verse 7, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother. We've all experienced this. Because often the first thought that comes to our mind when we see someone who's fallen into poverty is, what did they do to deserve it? And we start to judge them. We start to look down upon them. We start to think, well, they squandered. And that's part of what's happening in Deuteronomy chapter 15. There's no doubt about it. But God knows that. Here's the thing. We all squander. There isn't one of us here who hasn't squandered something that the Lord has given to us, whether it be financial, emotional, or spiritual. So for us to position ourselves as judges of someone who's fallen into poverty in any of those ways is inconsistent with the truth of what our doctrine teaches us about our sin nature. And so the Lord says, you will be tempted to harden your hearts against the poor. A third obstacle is to give, but to do it with a bad attitude. And that's what he talks about in verse 10. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. So this is the person who gives the money but complains about it. Is generous on the surface, but is a miser in their heart. And the damage that that does is first and foremost a damage to your own soul. Because again, you have positioned yourself or I have positioned myself as one who has done everything perfectly in terms of my own stewardship. The principle is that failing to participate generously will ruin your nation or for us, your church, and then it will ruin you. And so the Lord says, do not let it happen. Do not be those kind of people. Well, how do we hold ourselves accountable to this kind of covenantal generosity? Well, the answer is that we have to think about where we came from. And in Genesis 15, or Deuteronomy 15 and verse 15, there is a central verse that these people, this nation, should have understand, understood in a way different than any nation. And it's this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. It was Moses' responsibility to not let any one of these people forget from whence they'd come and what they were in the land of slavery. They were bound to the power of another. They could not free themselves. They were broken reeds. Their people had been vanquished. They were losing their religion. They had no hope until he sent a redeemer. And by the hand of his own power, he released them. And do you remember 
what happened with the Egyptians when the Israelites left? They were giving them things to go. They left with a bounty. And it only took a week for them to begin to complain anyway. Every pastor, every faithful Christian has a duty to repeat the essence of Deuteronomy 15.15 regularly. You shall remember that you were a slave to sin and that only by the hand of your Redeemer were you set free. By His generosity of life and blood did you find your freedom. And so, be generous. Look kindly upon one another. Give freely. Make sure that no one falls into poverty amongst you. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul grabs a hold of this concept and he says, Remember, church, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that is the animating good news of the gospel that not only saves us, but that sets our lives up to be witnesses in the way that we live amongst one another. To teach our children, to teach those that come among us what it means to walk in the ways of the Lord and not in the ways of the world. And there is a value, and that's the last thing to see this morning, in this kind of kinship generosity as the church has public witness. It's this, instead of seeing churches filled with infighting, judgmentalism, nitpicking theological details, greed. People see churches filled with generosity and warmth and forgiveness and it makes a difference. And this radical difference should distinguish us from the world, does it? A lot of you said you were really excited to see us uh, in pictures uh, uh, in Egypt standing in front of the pyramids. And the pyramids are indeed one of the great structures in the world. And if you want to see those pictures, I'll show them to you. But let me tell you this. We stood in another place in Egypt that was far better than the pyramids. And I want to tell you about it. It was in a suburb of Cairo called Mukatam. And here's a picture of the streets in this suburb. It's where the Christians live in Egypt. The government of Egypt forced the Christians out of the city and they lived in a slum called Mukatam. And the only thing they could do because of government regulations was to be trash collectors. There's no trash collection in Egypt. Nobody drives down the street in a government truck and picks up your trash. The trash just goes on the ground. The only job the Christians were allowed to do for a long time was pick up trash. And so in the city of Mukatam, the Christians, under the leadership of a Coptic evangelical priest, decided that they were going to make something of it. And so they began to collect trash all over Cairo and learn to recycle it and reuse it and make something of it. 
Well, gradually, people started flowing into this city, more and more Christians from around Egypt. And they realized, we don't have a church. And so, they started a church. But they were in a stony, rocky place. And so, to start a church, they had to do some work. They carved their church out of stone so they would have a place to worship. This first church that they carved out of the rock seats 2,500 people. And people began to flow into the suburb of Mukatam because of what God was doing in this place and redeeming it. This church became so full that they had to do something. And so they carved another church out of another rock that seats 25,000 people. And every Sunday in this church, the Christians of Egypt, in this poor, trash-filled suburb, come together to worship. In 2011, during the Muslim uprising, the Muslims bombed their churches in this city. And what did they do? They gathered in that church that week when we were watching the Muslim uprising on TV, 30,000 Christians packed in and they sang to the praise of Jesus. And since that day in March 2011, Muslims have begun to come to this church. They've come for prayer, they've come for healing, they've come for hope, and they've found Jesus. So that now the population of Christians in Egypt is growing out of a trash-filled rock suburb because they believe in the witness of the gospel in the way they treat each other and what they do with their practical lives. You can look up the stories. It's called the Cave Church. It was only started in 1970. But it is the most profound physical site you will see in Egypt. Dedicated not to the glory of a king and throwing everything in his grave that he might need when he wakes up in the afterlife, but to the glory of the risen king, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns and gives his people hope so that they can be a blessing to the people around them. We are called to a public witness And that public witness involves the way we treat one another in the church and the generosity we share so that no one amongst us is left behind. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would grant us the grace as your people to wrestle hard with the hard truths of your word which seem so distant and foreign to us, things like forgiving debts, giving people resources even though we know that they may not be able to pay us back and doing it with joy. I pray, God, that the witness of your word and the witness of these people like the ones in Mukatam and Cairo will have an impact on us. We are so blessed. We have so much. Lord, I pray that our church and other churches like ours around this country would be places that throb with the generosity of the gospel of grace and a generosity of heart and body and mind and voice to one another.
Teach us, Lord, how to do that. Protect us from those sinful temptations of greed and judgmentalism and set us free to be people of joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.